0: Section Three of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks, The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe, Chapter Two, The End of the Golden Age. We come to the last phase of Livia's career. Tiberius was now a tall, handsome man, though slightly disfigured, with long, fair hair and features strangely delicate from one of his exceptional physical strength. A better soldier than his predecessor, and not an inept statesman, he was well enough fitted to wield the power which Octavian had virtually bequeathed to him. But a retiring disposition, an unhappy youth, and long years of study— had made him shrink from the society of any but scholars, and he long hesitated to ascend the throne to which the Senate invited him. We have not got good ground to regard this reluctance as feigned. At last he consented, and the critics of Livia would have it that her ambition now passed such bounds as had been set to it by the ability of Octavian. We may freely admit that she looked forward to being closely associated in power with the son whose career she had followed with such devotion and helpfulness. On the other hand, we shall see how advantageous to the state her influence was. The evils that at once began to darken the life of Rome when Tiberius rejects her counsels will plainly show this, nor is there any evidence that she sought power from any other motive than the good of the state. She might take pride in what she did and even exaggerate it, but such pride is not inconsistent with the view that she was ever gentle, humane, and generous. The first searching test of her character occurs a few years after the accession of Tiberius. As the news of the death of Octavian slowly traveled over the empire, there were mutinous movements among the legions in many provinces. In Lower Germany especially, the troops considered that their commander, Germanicus, the nephew of Tiberius, was entitled to the purple, and they asked him to lead them to Rome. He was a handsome, engaging young general of imperial blood, with moderate ability and much conceit, and had won the regard of the soldiers by visiting the sick and wounded, advancing their pay out of his own purse and other popular acts. He was married to Julius' daughter, Agrippina, who lived in camp with him. They dressed their little son Caius in soldier's costume and his quaint appearance in miniature military boots, won for him the pet name Caligula, little boots, by which he is known to history. The legionaries thought that they had with them a model imperial family and promised to wrest the throne from Tiberius. Germanicus weakly composed the mutiny, mainly by forging a letter in the name of Tiberius and then treacherously executing the leaders, and endeavored to cover his blunders by vigorous and rather aimless attacks upon the Germans. Tiberius recalled him to Rome to enjoy a triumph and to keep him out of further mischief. Merivale acknowledges that his conquests were wholly visionary, but Germanicus had inherited the charm and popularity of his father, Drusus, and Rome was easily won for him people streamed out from the gates to meet him and gazed with awe on his gigantic blue-eyed captives and on the large, highly-colored paintings of his victories in Germany. It was a new source of concern for Livia and Tiberius, and to the satisfaction of Livia's critics, the danger ended like all the others. Germanicus and Agrippina were sent on a mission to the east. Tiberius seems to have had some disdain for his spoiled and conceited nephew, and he was well aware of the interested aims of those who affected to see in him a restorer of the old republican liberty he chose an older statesman Caius Calpurnius Piso to go out as governor of Syria to watch and prudently direct the movements of Germanicus with Piso was his wife Plancina an intimate friend of Livia from these, Tiberius and Livia shortly heard exasperating accounts of the progress of Germanicus and Agrippina. Piso found, on calling at Athens, that Germanicus had been flattering the Greeks for their ancient culture instead of pressing the dominion of Rome. He made free comments on the young general's conduct, pushed past his galleys as they dallied in Greek waters, and was hard at work in Syria when Germanicus arrived. The wives conducted the quarrel with more asperity than their husbands. Rome had now its party of Germanicus and party of Tiberius, and the news from the east was heatedly discussed. Germanicus had gone to Egypt without asking the emperor's permission and is patronizing the Greek and Egyptian cults, which Tiberius represses, and is going about in Greek instead of Roman dress, Piso has had a violent quarrel with Germanicus and left Syria, and before they have time to discuss this important intelligence, there comes a report that Germanicus is dangerously ill. That bones of dead men, half-burnt fragments of sacrificial victims, leaden tablets with the names of Germanicus scrawled on them, and other deadly charms, have been found under the floors and between the walls of his house. At length the news comes that Germanicus is dead, and that with his last breath he has urged his friends to avenge him. Rome goes into mourning, all the shops are closed, and crowds gather everywhere to discuss this fresh tragedy of the imperial house. In the middle of the night a rumor spreads that Germanicus is not dead, and people fill the streets with the glare of their torches and break into the temples. But the fatal news is confirmed, and... When at last Agrippina comes with a golden urn containing his ashes, such mourning is seen as no living man can remember. People observed that neither Livia nor Tiberius appeared at the funeral. Livia had no reason to be present, and Tiberius knew that the demonstration was due largely to a spirit of hostility to himself. For the rest, it was merely the feeling of a frivolous people for a handsome and unfortunate youth. But Livia incurred more serious censure during the trial of Pisa, which followed. The ex-governor of Syria defended himself resolutely for a day or two, and then, hearing that his wife had deserted him, committed suicide. The anger of the citizens now turned on the wife, Plancina, The empress, with whom she had been in close communication throughout, begged Tiberius to save her, and he reluctantly checked the prosecution. Livia was, of course, accused of sheltering a murderess. It must be recollected that the accounts of the story are taken in part from the memoirs of Agrippina's daughter and are colored with prejudice against Tiberius and his mother. One cannot see anything more serious than indiscretion in Livia's conduct. Her conviction of the innocence of Plancina is intelligible enough, and one can equally understand how she would distrust a trial held in Rome in the inflamed state of public feeling. There is no serious reason to suspect, in the death of Germanicus, the action of any other poison than the tainted atmosphere of the East. But the interference of Livia annoyed Tiberius, and the ten years that followed are full of differences between mother and son, The emperor's resentment of his mother's share in public affairs had begun with his reign. Livia had proposed to erect a statue to the memory of Octavian. Tiberius interfered and referred her to the Senate for permission. She then proposed to give a commemoratory banquet to the senators and their wives. Tiberius restricted her to the wives and entertained the senators himself. He reduced her escort crowned on the public honors that were paid to her, and resented her interference in public affairs. On one occasion, her friend Erlogania was summoned for debt, and presuming on her intimacy with the empress, treated the process with contempt. Livia asked Tiberius to quash the proceedings, and he deliberately lingered so much on his way to the forum that the case was allowed to proceed." These are a few of the stories which illustrate the want of harmony between them. For this, Livia was largely to blame. It was not unnatural that she, who had been so often and so profitably consulted by Octavian, should expect a larger power under the young emperor, but she failed to take discreet account of the extreme sensitiveness of Tiberius. If a story given in Suetonius is correct, she so far lost her discretion in one of their quarrels as to produce old letters in which Octavian had made bitter reflections on the defects of Tiberius. The fault was not wholly on her side, however. Tiberius was jealous when he contrasted the honor and respect paid to her with the general feeling of reserve and distrust toward himself, and he pleaded the old fashioned idea of women's sphere as a pretext to restrain her. He grumbled when he one day found her directing the extinction of a fire, as she had done more than once in Octavian's time, and he was seriously angry when he found that she had placed her name before his on a public inscription. But we may leave these lesser matters and come to the next tragedy in the Imperial Chronicle, the shadow of which darkened Livia's closing years She had retired from the palace to the house which she had inherited from her first husband, Tiberius Nero. Here she remained a saddened and helpless spectator of the coming disaster. Tiberius, whom she saw only once more before she died, had become a peevish and gloomy old man. His tall spare frame was bent, his head bald, his face, which had always been disfigured with pimples, now hideous with eczema, or concealed with bandages. His large, melancholy eyes so startled people that they believed he could see in the dark. Astrologers and students of the occult gathered about him in the palace he had built on the Palatine, and the way lay open for adventurers. The two chief aspirants for power were Agrippina, the widow of Germanicus, and Sejanus, Tiberius's favorite general. Julia's younger daughter seems to have concentrated in her person all the masculinity of her family. Implacable, as Tacitus says, proud and ambitious, she added to the gloom that was deepening on the Palatine. Merivale calls her the She-Wolf. It seems probable that she sought marriage with the aged Tiberius in order to secure power for herself or her son. The only son of the emperor had been poisoned by Sejanus, as we shall see presently, and her son had a plausible title to inherit the purple. The authorities tell us that Tiberius one day found her in tears and was entreated, when he asked the reason, to find her a husband. She thought it expedient to forget the supposed share of Tiberius in the death of her husband. Her innocent maneuvers were met, however, by the sinister intrigues of Sejanus, one of the most unscrupulous characters we have yet encountered. Under a cloak of friendliness, he was countering her schemes and ruining her house. He had seduced her daughter, Levilla, the wife of Tiberius's son, Drusus, and had, with her connivance, poisoned the young prince and kept the secret from the emperor for many years." It is said that he then made proposals to Agrippina to unite their ambitions and, when these were rejected, he determined to destroy her and secure the supreme power for himself. He put his great ability astutely at the service of the emperor and once had the good fortune to save his life by arching his Herculean body over Tiberius when the roof of a cave fell on them. It is probable that he inflamed the resentment of Tiberius against his mother, and then used the estrangement to increase the unpopularity of the emperor. Scurrilous libels on the ungrateful son were current in Rome. These are sometimes attributed to writers in the service of Livia, but it would be a natural part of the scheme of Sejanus to spread them. On one occasion, a noble lady, Abilia Virilia, was charged by the Senate with accusing Tiberius and Livia of incest. Tiberius consulted his mother and declared to the senate that they wished to treat the libel with contemptuous indifference. To Sejanus also we must, on the authority of Tacitus, attribute a plot against Agrippina which other writers assigned to Tiberius or to Livia. At a banquet in the palace it was noticed that Agrippina, pale and sullen, passed all the dishes untouched. Tiberius at length invited her to eat a fine apple which he chose. Under the eyes of all, she handed it to a servant to throw away, and Tiberius not unnaturally complained of her unjust suspicions. Tacitus, who gives the most credible version of the story, says that the agents of Segenus had warned her that she was to be poisoned at the banquet, so that she would act in a way that the emperor would resent. Tiberius, weary of the violent passions of the capital, now lived chiefly in Campania. It is not improbable that his disfigurement made him sensitive. Rome would not spare the feelings of so unpopular a ruler. It is not at all clear that he shrank from his imperial duties. Suetonius expressly says that he thought it possible to rule better from the provinces, or that he wished to indulge in the wild debauches which some attribute to him probably Sejanus, to secure more power for himself, persuaded him that he could best discharge his duties from a provincial seat. At this juncture in the year 29, saddened by the estrangement from her son, by his helpless surrender to an unscrupulous adventurer, and by the increasing degeneration of Rome, Livia died. She had, by sober living, plenty adds, by the constant chewing of a sweet meat containing a certain medicinal root, and by the use of Pucinian wine, attained at the great age of eighty-six. She had seen her husband dispel the long horrors of civil war, refresh the empire, and adorn Rome, and she had felt the gloom and chill of a coming tragedy in her later years. Few of the empresses have been so differently estimated as Livia. Merivale regards her as a memorable example of successful artifice, having obtained in succession, by craft if not by crime, every object she could desire in the career of female ambition. He adds, but she had long survived every genuine attachment she may at any time have inspired, nor has a single voice been raised by posterity to supply the want of honest eulogium in her own day. The more concentrated research of the biographer has often to reverse the verdict of the historian and in this case it must acquit olivia of either craft or vice it is a singular error to say that livia had no honest eugolium in her own day the roman senate is exposed to the disdain of historians for its obsequiousness to the reigning emperor yet at the death of olivia it sought to honor her memory in spite of the resentment of Tiberius. The emperor had refused to go to Rome, either to see her before death or to attend her funeral. He gave to Rome an example of silent indifference. Yet he had to use his authority to prevent the Senate from decreeing divine honors to Livia, building an arch to her memory, and declaring her mother of her country. Dio remarks that the senators were moved to do these things out of sincere gratitude and respect. Few of the less wealthy members of the Senate had not profited by her generosity. Their children had been educated, and their daughters had received dowries from her purse. Her generosity is recognized by all the authorities. Her humanity is made plain by the contents of this chapter. The adverse estimate of Livia's character is chiefly based on the annals of Tacitus, And it has long been recognized that Tacitus drew his account largely from the memoirs of the younger Agrippina, daughter of the woman who hated Livia. Yet Tacitus adds, when he has recorded the death of Livia, from this moment the government of Tiberius became a sheer oppressive despotism. While Augusta lived, one avenue of escape remained opened, for the emperor was habitually deferent toward his mother and Sejanus dared not thwart her parental authority. But when this curb was removed, there was nothing to check their further career. We have seen that Livia had used the same restraining influence on the impetuosity of Octavian. With her died the attribute, or the wise policy, of imperial clemency, only to be revived by emperors who adopted that stoic creed in which she found consolation after the death of her son. That she was hard and unscrupulous is entirely at variance with the most authenticated facts of her career. To say that she was avaricious is a sheer absurdity. She maintained her sober personal habits to the end and took money only to bestow it on the indigent and worthy or expend it in erasing public buildings. We may grant that she had some ambition, but may claim that it was well for Rome that she had it. She fell into many errors of judgment in her later years, when Roman life was confused by such strong undercurrents of intrigue. But these very errors tend to discredit the notion that she employed a consummate art and strong intelligence in the furthering of her own interests. In a word, it is the vices and follies of later empresses that have disposed historians to regard her sober virtues as a mere mask. Note, for the guidance of the general reader, it is advisable to add a few words on the Latin authorities whom we now constantly quote. Tacitus, the chief source of our knowledge down to the year 70 AD, is not only weakened as a historian by the very strength of his morality, but he has too lightly followed the memoirs in which the later Agrippina defamed the rival imperial family. Suetonius, who takes this as far as Dominiton, is no less honest, but he has too genial and indulgent a love of anecdotes to discard any on the mere ground that they are untrue or improbable. Dio Cassius, who covers the first two centuries, is usually described as malignant, but one may question if he does more than indulge still further the same amiable preference Of piquancy to truth. The Historia Augusta, which is our chief authority for the greater part of the empresses and the richest source of scandal, has been much and profitably discussed since Gibbon placed such reliance on it. It is now thought by some experts that the original writers of this series of biographical sketches of the Roman emperors lived at the beginning of the third century and had a comparatively sober standard of work. Toward the close of the third or beginning of the fourth century, the work was written afresh by the group of less scrupulous writers whose names or pseudonyms actually stand at the head of its chapters. But a still later writer once more recast the work and lowered its authority. He wrote frankly from the point of view of the piquant anecdotist omitting much that would interest only the prosy student of exact facts, and filling up the vacant space with such faint legends of imperial vice or folly as still, in his time, lingered without the pale of history or arose in the field of romance. The question is fully discussed by Otto Schultz, Leben des Kaisers Hadrian, 1905, and Professor Kornemann, Kaiser Hadrian, 1906, end of section 3.